Good morning once again. It's good to see all of you. Thank you for joining us this morning here at Clemson Presbyterian Church. If you'll go ahead and turn with me uh, to Galatians chapter 1. This morning we're going to read verses 10 through 24, the end of the chapter. This will be our second week in the book of Galatians, uh, probably one of Paul's first letters, oldest, earliest book in the New Testament that the Apostle Paul wrote uh, to churches that he had started. And they had moved on in other journeys to start more churches, and now he writes letters back to old friends, to churches that he had started. And we saw last week as we started in the first half of chapter 1 that Paul comes out swinging, didn't he? We saw how oftentimes in his letters he um, starts off kind of soft. I miss you. I thank God for you. I long to see you. Except in one, in Galatians. He comes out with, I am astonished. He comes out swinging because he had established these churches, we saw, on a message of freedom from performance. No longer having to perform in a religious sense or any other sense to get God's approval and smile and love. But people had come in people that we call the Judaizers. We call them that because they came in and said, yes, you need faith in Jesus Christ, but you also need something else. You need to keep certain parts of the Jewish law. Paul, as we'll see today, huge fan of the Jewish law. He thought it was great, but he said, when you add it as a requirement for God's approval and smile, he gets very upset because you lose everything. As the quote at the start of your worship folder this morning says, as soon as you add anything to the gospel, even the smallest little deed, in addition to faith alone, you lose everything. Now, of course, the question is, why should these Galatians believe the Judaizers? What did the Judaizers say in order to boost their argument? Well, they came in and they said, well, Paul's not really an apostle. Paul doesn't have the same authority as the other apostles in Jerusalem, who they said agreed with them, although they really agreed with Paul, as we'll also see next week. So in order now to defend his message, Paul's in an odd place where he has to defend himself. If he's going to defend what he said about faith plus nothing leads to salvation, he's going to have to say, actually, I got my message from not just the apostles, I didn't get it from them, I got it from God. He got this message, he says, from God himself. And if that's true, I want you to see this morning, then that is good news for us. So what I hope to show you is that if Paul gets this news from God, it's good news for us. So let's read now Galatians chapter 1, verses 10 through 24. This is God's word. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. 
But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, which you might know was another name for the apostle Peter. And I remained with him 15 days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was known Excuse me, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Let's pray one more time. Father, thank you for these words. Thank you for entrusting them to your servant Paul and preserving them for us. Lord, I pray that. Whatever spot each one of us might be as we come to worship you this morning, I pray that you would take these ancient words and make them fresh, that you would blow new life into them once again for our sake and for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. So let's try to get at what Paul's saying this morning by looking at four points. First, I want us to see that good news from God. Second, I want you to see the good news is for the wicked. Third, for the righteous, and fourth, for you. So first, good news from God, which we said is really what Paul is at pains to show here over and over, that he got his message from God. He delves into his autobiography some, if you were paying attention as we read. If you look back with me at verse 13, he says, For you've heard of my former life in Judaism. And when he says his former life in Judaism, you might know he's referring to his experience as a Pharisee. And a Pharisee was, you could some sense say, a sect of early Judaism. It was a group within Judaism. They were laymen, we would call them today. And they were committed to a zealous uh, keeping and observance of God's law. And again, not a bad thing. But in their uh, zeal to keep God's law, they said, how about we make up some more laws? so that if we don't break all these extra laws, we won't even get close to breaking God's law. So in their zeal to keep God's law, they made up more laws, and then they made sure that everybody else kept with the same zeal they were, their laws as well as God's. And in some ways, they looked very impressive. They were the religious superstars, you might say, of first century Judaism. They were uh, the SEAL team. They were those who really took it seriously. And yet Paul also, we see, was one of those men. And in his zeal, he says, I was zealous to destroy the church. Verse 13, he persecuted the church of God, violently trying to destroy it. The first time we meet the man who wrote these words, the apostle Paul, we first meet him back in the book of Acts. Except then his name wasn't Paul, his name you might know was Saul. And he was, like we said, a Pharisee. And the first time we meet him was at the stoning of the first Christian martyr named Stephen. Stephen had preached a sermon to the Jews. They did not like this sermon. And so they picked up rocks and they stoned him. And we read that Saul, Paul, was there holding on to the garments of the men who threw the stones. In other words, these religious officials took off their fancy robes in order to get dirty in their killing of Stephen. And Paul said, please, let me hold 
your robes for you. One man said, Paul was running coat check at the first Christian martyr. Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it says, Saul, Paul, approved of Stephen's execution. He's smiling. This is a good thing. This man's being stoned to death. Saul's smiling. And it says, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This is the man who's now writing the book of Galatians, holding coats, approving of executions, going house to house, pulling people out, committing them to prison. The word in the text here for destroy in Greek is the same as when you sack a city. Paul's going after nothing, nothing less than the extermination of these new Christians, this new church. And what Paul is trying to get at, in part by telling them all this, is to say, what in the world could explain my shift? Of course, he says it can be supernaturally explained. This shift from going from persecutor to persecuted. Why would he give up this position and privilege of power to join the weak? Why is the one who approved of a stoning now being stoned, which we also read of later? In Acts. This very man knew what it would cost to confess Jesus Christ in first century Judaism because he knew, because he had done it. He had been the one to persecute. He had been the one to approve of stonings. Now he's being persecuted. Now he's being stoned. He goes from this position of power to weakness. What can explain it? He says this revelation of Jesus Christ, verse 12. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Again, we also read about this in the book of Acts. This time in chapter 9, he was leaving Jerusalem, bringing his terror campaign to another city north of there called Damascus, which he mentions he went back to later on. Verses 3 through 5 of Acts 9 say this, Now as Saul or Paul went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. This very man persecuting the church hears from the Lord of the church, Jesus Christ, another first century Jew, and says, I am calling you, Paul. I am calling you, Saul. Despite all of your experience as a Pharisee, despite all of your wickedness and your stoning of Christians, your persecution of Christians, I am calling you. He goes on to make it clear he didn't get it from any other man either. He did not get it from the other apostles or church leaders of the day. Verses 16 and 17, it says, After this, he did not consult with anyone. He didn't go back to headquarters, so to speak, in Jerusalem, but he went away into Arabia and then on to Damascus. Verse 18, it wasn't for three years that he went to Jerusalem to meet the other apostles. And when he did, he spent only 15 days there, long enough to compare notes but not be trained by the apostle Peter here called Cephas, and then he meets one other apostle, James. But he doesn't meet the other apostles. He isn't introduced to the church. They don't know who he is. All they know is this man out there that used to persecute us, we hear rumors that he's actually switched sides. He's preaching Jesus. And for someone who's lying, if he was lying, he'd be giving an awful lot of alibis. He's saying, go and check this out, right? So the Judaizers said Paul's message did not match the other apostles from Jerusalem. But in that, in and of itself, 
they weren't right either. As Paul's going to go on in the section we look at next week to say, I got it from God, but it does match the other apostles as well. One commentator said, Paul's message he did not invent, nor did he inherit, but it came from God. And that means if we have before us this morning a truth from outside of human understanding, a truth that comes in from the outside, a transcendent truth from God Himself, that means two very important things that we can sometimes forget. It means we can be certain of this truth. We can be certain because if it comes from God outside of human understanding, we can trust it. We can rest on it. We can be certain. But here's what too often happens when we come to understand a truth from outside the human system. In this case, Paul says, from God. We can get very arrogant. And those outside the church pick up on this so quickly, long before we ever do. We become very arrogant. We have the truth, which is so backwards. Because if it comes from God, it's a gift. So we can be certain, but never arrogant. There's nothing about understanding this truth from God that leads to any kind of pride or arrogance whatsoever. I'm probably going to quote Martin Luther every week of this Galatians series because he's shaped so much of everyone's understanding of this letter. He said this, the knowledge of Christ and of faith is not a human work, but utterly a divine gift. It's a gift. Can you ever be proud of a gift that you receive? Do you do anything to earn a gift? And if you do, it's not a gift. And so Paul says, I receive this message from God. I've shared it with you. Could he be certain? Yes. Could he be arrogant? Absolutely not. He's never arrogant about the good news that he shares because of his past, because of his former life, how he persecuted the church. So if this is true, if this good news is from God, then who is this good news for? Let's look secondly at how this good news is for the wicked. And again, go back with me to verse 13. And remember how Paul says he persecuted the church violently. He tried to destroy it. He's confessing that he's guilty of these terrible sins. He's not hiding from them. He's not proud of them, but he's not hiding from them either, which is a very hard thing for us to do sometimes. We want to hide from those shameful things we've done in the past. It says in the book of Acts that we read that he went into people's homes and dragged them out to put them in prison. Imagine that happening. Imagine people going house to house to your house, pulling you out, committing you to prison. I wonder what he could remember as he pulled out these husbands and fathers, as he pulled out wives and mothers. Could he remember faces? He probably knew some of their names. Jerusalem wasn't that big a town at the time. Did he remember even terrible things like the cries of the children as they were separated from their parents? Acts 9 tells us he was breathing out threats and murder. He's not just a neutral figure. He struck fear and terror into the hearts of so many. And who is the good news for? It's for people like that. Paul says the good news was for him. This good news from God is for a man like that. It's for the wicked. This man who mercilessly hauled men and women off to jail discovered he needed mercy. 
He needed this good news from God, and it wasn't that he was too bad for it. It wasn't that he was such an evil man, and he was, but he wasn't such an evil man that God did not share good news with him. This good news that he could be free of the guilt that he had incurred by all these terrible things he had done. This good news from God is for the wicked. And isn't that all of us? It's me. Because don't we all have things that we would not like anyone else to know? Things that we want to hide? Things that we hope never come to light? Even if a few people already know them, may it go no further. Something that, man, if it got out, I would die. Something from perhaps years ago that we're ashamed of. Maybe something that we've said to someone that was cutting and awful. Maybe it was something that we did to someone. I'm often surprised that though I've walked with God for a number of years, I can still fall into this. My sin is too great. God now will turn aside. He now will turn away. He will turn His face from me. And yet, He's so kind over and over again to show me, to show you, that He won't do that. That He will always pursue us. That we cannot out His grace. And I never grow tired of sitting with those who are hearing for the first time or the millionth time that their sin, their wickedness is not too great for God's forgiveness. All of us need to hear that this morning. That place that you're most ashamed is the place that God loves you. That's where you need to know that even when you were doing that thing, while you were yet a sinner, Paul says in another book that he wrote called Romans chapter 5, while we were yet sinners, God loved us. While you were engaging in that kind of sin, God loved you. Who knows what it might be? So many of the sins that I've talked to, whether it be in someone's past or whatever, that they're the most ashamed about are the places where they need to hear it the most. Maybe it was an addiction. Maybe it was some kind of sexual sin. Maybe it was an unethical decision at work. Whatever it was, it's not too great. How do we know? Look what Paul was. And yet, God revealed Jesus Christ to him. The good news is for the wicked. And it frees us from that slavery to guilt. It frees us from that religious sense of having to work off our debt to God. Yes, I messed up, and now I had better start behaving in order to work this off. We're free from that kind of performance. Maybe this describes you, or maybe it doesn't. Maybe you feel, I've never really messed up like that. I mean, there's some things that aren't pleasant, but I've never made a quote-unquote huge mistake. I don't have something like that. And that's true for some of us. So thirdly, the good news is not just for the wicked. It is for the righteous. The good news is also for the righteous. And let me define my terms here because I know and I believe and I hope you know and understand that all have fallen short of the glory of God that all have sinned and fallen short. So what do I mean by righteous? By righteous, I mean religious in all the worst senses of the word. Religious in the sense that I'm going to clean up the outside and act like there's nothing wrong on the inside. Religious in the sense that I'm going to clean up the outside and judge everyone else who doesn't clean up their outside behavior as well. You might say self-righteous. The good news is for the wicked and it's for the righteous the religious and the bad senses of the word, it is for the self-righteous. The ways that we try to build ourselves up and look down on others. And maybe it is 
through how you seek to practice Christianity. Maybe it's through some other part of your life that you try to build a sense of self-worth and validity, but by actually doing that now, you become in a position where you look down on someone else. could just be how you manage your money or raise your kids, whatever it is. Sometimes in Christian circles, especially for those in younger generations, it's, I'm going to practice good and transparent and authentic Christian community. And then I will have been religious in the best and what becomes then the worst sense of the word. Because what we're trying to do is put God in our debt. We're trying to put God in our debt so that we get a certain outcome that we want, perhaps we think in the life to come. But really more often than not, especially folks in our circles, I think, we do that in order to get a certain outcome in this life. I'm going to quote-unquote be righteous to get the outcome I want in this life, to make a better life for me, to get a better uh, career, to have my kids turn out a certain way, to have my life turn out a certain way. And remember the context of Galatians. Paul is saying, look, if you could earn God's approval by keeping the law, that would have been me. I could have done it. I was there. I was as good as anybody else, he says, but it didn't work. So the good news was for Paul on his wicked side, but also good news for Paul on the quote-unquote righteous side also. If you could have earned God's pleasure and approval and smile by obedience, that was the track I was running down as hard and as fast as I could. The self-righteous, though, are those who see a relationship with God as something transactional. I put an X, God will give me Y. If I behave, then God better behave. If I do what I think God expects of me, he better do what I expect of him, a transactional relationship. And like we saw last week, the heart of that is the same heart as the quote-unquote wicked. It's to be independent from God. Sin is less about actions and behavior, though it's not less than that, and it's more about a heart that says, I don't need God. And sometimes we exercise that kind of heart in rebelling against what God says is loving towards him and neighbor, and sometimes we exercise that heart by saying, I'm going to keep God's law so I can keep him at arm's length and actually control him. I will be independent of him. One of my favorite authors, Flannery O'Connor, She does better than anybody else I know at describing the awful life and relationships that results from self-righteousness. She says this about one of her characters. Listen to this. There was already a deep, black, wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. The way to avoid Jesus, this character thought, was to avoid sin. You think sometimes we avoid Jesus by running towards sin, But sometimes we avoid Jesus by running away from it. It's that sense of, I won't need him. I'll build up my own platform. I'll build up my own foundation, and I won't need Jesus. The way to avoid him was to avoid sin. One of the best ways to tell if you're one of the self-righteous is to ask just this question. What do you want? What do you really want? Some of you might have heard the name of Paige Benton Brown. She's a well-known Bible teacher. She's the daughter of my pastor from my St. Louis days. And I heard her tell a story one time when I lived there in St. Louis. She had returned. She'd been gone for a long time. She'd grown up there in that church, and now she's back as an adult, and she's catching up with different people. And one lady, a mother in the church, is sharing with Paige about her high school going into college son. 
And she said, I'm so proud of him. He's doing so good. He has straight A's. He plays sports. He's getting scholarships. And he doesn't run around and get drunk. And Paige, with a lot more guts than any of us would have, looked at her and said, is that all you want? <laughs> is that it? Is that the end of it? Because while all those things are good things, and certainly we can want those things for our kids, we have to ask, in the case of raising kids as a parent, is that all we want? Would it be enough if that was true of them but not much else? In other words, would it be enough? What do you want? What's the outcome in life that you would be satisfied with? As long as you have a good and comfortable and well-off enough life where no real trouble comes in, is that enough? And how are you trying to get there? Is it by accessorizing your life with God? Because that's what we so often do. This is where the righteous, quote-unquote, need the gospel. We're just trying to bring God in enough to get the outcome we want, a transactional relationship. If I do what he expects, he better do what I expect. And I expect a good outcome in my life, in my kid's life, in my career, in my health, or whatever it might be. Do you need the good news as a quote-unquote righteous person? How can you know? Is God a burden to you? Are the things you think you have to do in order to get that life you think you want, are those things a burden? Or is God, like we said last week, is he beautiful to you? God is pursuing you even in those things. We said at your worst moment, God's loved you. And even in these things, God loves and forgives and accepts. And that's the good news Paul is sharing even in these verses. When I'm wicked, the gospel is for me. When I'm quote-unquote righteous, the gospel is for me. I can't be independent of God. I have to surrender and go to Him. And that brings us to our last point, the good news for you, the good news for me. It's at least three things in this passage. One, God wants you. God wants you. Verses 15 and 16, Paul says, God set him apart before he was born and then was pleased to reveal Jesus to Paul. I want us to think about that word, pleased. It pleased God. It brought him pleasure. It brought him happiness. It brought him delight to give a sinner like Paul good news. It pleased him. He didn't say, oh, fine, even to somebody like that. He wasn't exasperated. It pleased him. It's the same word that is used when God speaks of Jesus at his baptism and at his transfiguration. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. And you're like, well, yeah, he should be pleased with Jesus. He was the son of God. He was perfect. He loved God and he loved others perfectly. But I want you to see this about God's heart. Even in our sin, before Paul was the apostle, God was pleased to reveal the good news from him to Paul. God is pleased to give us the same grace in your wickedness and your quote-unquote righteousness. God is pleased, happy, delighting. That's the way God has always been in the New Testament and the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, God says this, it was not because you, the nation of Israel, were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. God says, I loved this one nation, not because they're the strongest or the most, but because the Lord loves you. Why would he love this nation of Israel? Because he loves them. 
And isn't that real love? As soon as you say, I love you because you're the strongest, or I love you because you're the most beautiful, or I love you because you're the most obedient, or I love you because you have the most potential, that's not real love. Love is I love you because I love you. And that's God. That's what he's saying. God was pleased to reveal his son to me. When I was violently persecuting his own people, he was pleased to reveal his son to me. That's the only kind of love we can be secure in because it's the only kind of love we don't have to earn. And if we don't have to earn it, we can't lose it. Do you know that in your bones? Do you know that's true? Do you know that kind of love from the Father? Do you know how that can set you free? The good news for you is that God wants you. The good news here for you is also that God prepares you. Think with me back now to verse 15. Paul says, God set him apart before he was born. Think back on that autobiography of Paul that I shared with you. From a zealous, persecuting, obedient, in some senses Pharisee, to that wicked and righteous side that he both had, that, or that he, 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 he had both of them. That made Paul uniquely qualified to preach the gospel to Gentile and to Jew. Paul's background that we just described made him uniquely qualified to preach the gospel, the good news of freedom from slavery of performance to God, to both the religious and the non-religious, to both the wicked and the righteous. He had lived both sides of the coin. God was preparing him for this job that he gave, as we'll see as we go through Galatians, at a unique point in history to bring that truth from Jesus to Jews and to Gentiles both, who had very different questions, very different cultures, very different expectations, as religious in the Jewish sense, as religious in the Greek sense, or the non-religious way, both were there ready to be preached to by Paul because of his background. God prepared him, and God is preparing you as well. We have as many stories in this room as we have people. There's many different experiences with how we have sinned in our lives as we have people, and we have as many different stories of how we've been sinned against as we have people. But whatever your story is, God's not absent from it. God is preparing you, I think, and preparing me in the same way he prepared Paul. He was uniquely ready to do this thing God called him to do because of his background. And you're up close to your life like this, and you say, I can't see it, it's just ugly. My sin and the way I'm sinned against is just ugly. And I'd say it's more like one of those oil brush paintings that you see in a museum. And when you're right up here, all you see is a clunky, ugly twist of paint with a brush, and you think, that's not pretty at all. But if you step back 10 feet or 20 feet or 30 feet, then you can see how all of those quote-unquote ugly brushstrokes come together to make a masterpiece. And that's what we need to see in our lives. God is doing something in you so that he can do something through you. God is preparing you to use you through all the different parts of your stories. And I don't know what that is. And it's not that there's this one thing and if you miss it, you've missed out, right? But the more you walk along, the more you say, oh, I can see now why God was doing that thing earlier in my life that was so painful because he's brought maybe someone else across my path and now I have an ability to see what they're going through, maybe to help them or maybe to serve in a certain way. Who knows what it is? The good news is that God wants you, he prepares you, and then last, then God uses you. Just as he used Paul. Verse 16, God was 
God was pleased to reveal His Son to me, it says. But if you look at your footnote, if you're using the ESV translation, footnote says in instead of to. In Greek, it says God was pleased to reveal His Son in me. And I think Paul is taking two experiences in his life and putting them together. First, Christ, of course, had revealed Himself to Paul. But he had also revealed himself in Paul. He was revealing himself in him and through him. He both revealed his grace to Paul, and now he was revealing his grace to others through Paul. Because Christianity is not an intellectual thing. It's not less than that, but it's a personal relationship, just as it was for Paul. Christ revealed in him so that Christ might be revealed through him. And what happens so often is we work for God with a self-righteous fervor, and then when we realize, I'm free, I don't have to do that, well, then we quit working for God. But that's not what Paul did at all. He just worked now with the right motivations and with freedom, and God is calling you in that way, maybe that He's been preparing you to be used by Him. Because if God can use someone like Paul, God can use someone like you. God can use someone like me. And that gives us that purpose and meaning that we long for because it comes from outside of ourselves. It comes from outside of our human system so we can be certain but never arrogant. It's for all of us, no matter the good or the bad things that we've done in the past. And it changes us. And what happened to Paul? If you look just as we close at verses 23 and 24. They were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. People can see you change as well. Many people have seen many of us change. It's always good to hear, you're not the same person that I remember. You seem to have grown in humility. You seem to have grown in conviction, but not arrogance. It's beautiful to see there is one thing that can do it. And it is that good news from God. Let's pray. Lord, again, as we prayed at the beginning, we are grateful, Lord, that you have spoken truth to us, truth that we can be certain of, truth that brings humility to us. Father, you know each person, each heart, each life, each area of shame and regret, each area of guilt. Father, I pray that in all of those places, and even the places where we're proud and arrogant, Lord, that you would speak again your grace and your love to us. Lord, we're prone to forget these things, so we pray that as we come now to this sacrament which you have given us, the Lord's Supper, that you would help us, Father, to remember, to trust, to rest, to enjoy you. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.